0: This Torah One One podcast is dedicated in the merit of the swift and total recovery of Batya Batchaya. She is a dear friend and supporter of Torch, a wonderful woman who recently got diagnosed with a particularly aggressive form of cancer. Thank God it is treatable, but she still needs our prayers. Batya Batchana, please include her in your prayers and may she merit a complete and total recovery. And as always, the email address is RabbiWalby at gmail.com. We are still in the 10th principle of the 13 principles of faith, and that principle states that the Almighty knows everything that humans do. Not only does he know what we do, there is divine omniscience, but he behaves, i.e., he treats us accordingly. And the Rambam, in his description of this principle, he tells us that this is not like the heretics who say that God has abandoned the land, Azav Hashem no we believe that the mighty is in charge he knows all and he behaves accordingly Now we mentioned last week that this is quite an unusual phenomenon the Ram tells us that there are people who believe in god they acknowledge that he created everything but they are certain that he is no longer at the wheel Now why would people adopt such an unusual almost contradictory position So the Ram tells us that the reason why people adopted such a position is because they don't see fairness in what happens in the world. They see a world, and there's disorder, and there's chaos, and the inputs don't seem to be correlated with the outputs. You don't get what you put in. We're living in such an unfair world. It can't be that God is in charge. How could it be that good people have bad circumstances And bad people live long and happy and prosperous lives. How could a good and just God do that? It must be, conclude the heretics, that God has abandoned the land. Now, what do we believe? So the Torah tells us, Hatsur tamim pa'alo, the rock, i.e. God, perfect is his deeds. In all his ways is their judgment. A trustworthy God with no iniquity, righteous and straight is he. This is in Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. We believe that the Almighty operates with complete and total righteousness and fairness and straightness in everything that he does. Not only is God the sole power, he knows everything, he's in charge of everything, and he meets out judgment and dispenses positive circumstances in this world with utter complete fairness and goodness. We believe that there's not a scintilla, a smidgen of lack of fairness, of lack of goodness in God's operation of the world. The Talmud tells us, everything that God does is for good. Now it's important to stress, like the Ramah told us last week, everything that God does is for good not necessarily everything that man does. Of course, we believe that the world is almost like a partnership. Humans have free will, and God, of course, is also in charge. When humans do bad, you can't blame God for that. When humans do self-harm, when humans harm other humans, that's not God's doing, that's man's doing. The subject at hand is the operations of God, and we say, that everything that God does is righteous and just and good. But of course, like we mentioned last week, we acknowledge fully that his ways are above us. We're just like ants, fruit flies, buds, like we mentioned last week. And you want to compare maybe an analogy. You have a bug trying to understand quantum mechanics. There's a big difference between those two. But do that times a million And that's almost an accurate analogy. You have a fruit fly and a nuclear physicist, and they're both arguing about physics, which one would you trust? There's a big difference, a big gulf between those two. Do that times a million, and you still have not quite reached the discrepancy between our knowledge, our understanding, our perception, and God's. He's infinite, and we're finite. And therefore, we don't have the arrogance and the hubris to say that we know exactly what's fair and what's righteous and what's just and what's good. We acknowledge that our window of vision, our little slice of knowledge of what's happening in the world, is less than even a drop of water in the Pacific Ocean. And even that times 500 million. We freely admit our ignorance, and we trust that God takes everything into account. We cannot fathom His ways, And we don't exactly understand why things happen unless God tells us in a prophecy. And we have that, of course, in the Torah. You know, this past week's parasha, we're told that Abraham is doing kindness with three angels masquerading as men. And the Talmud reveals that when the Almighty saw that, he used this episode to determine the treatment that he's going to give to Jewish people in the 40 years in the wilderness. And therefore, because Abraham himself fed the angels, God himself fed the Jewish people in the wilderness with the manna and the quail. Whereas because Abraham told them to get water on their own, he used an emissary, God used an emissary for the Jewish people with water. Of course, Moshe, go speed to the rock. And Moshe went and hit the rock. If you were to analyze those two stories, they would not be related it's only because this was revealed to us via prophecy, we see how God operates in this particular instance. We would have no idea what caused the output or what input caused the output, unless God told us about it. And as an aside, I'll tell you, this idea was featured in my newsletter this past week. I restarted my newsletter because the kids are back in school. And I think we've been on quite a run lately. In my opinion... This upcoming week's newsletter will probably be the most impactful thing you ever read in your life. So if you're not subscribed, send me an email, or visit my website, rabbiwobod.com forward slash newsletter. You can also look in the links in the description of the podcast. There's always a link to subscribe to the newsletter. So just a little shout out for that. But we acknowledge that in the deep ways of God, we are ignorant and we freely admit so but nevertheless we are encouraged to try to understand the general principles of why god does certain things we understand the you know the general contours the modi operandi of god even though we can't point to a specific situation and say why did god do this specifically we don't know only god knows Nevertheless, we're encouraged to try to understand the general rules, to try to build frameworks of understanding how God operates within his world. And once we have these frameworks, then that's very helpful for us to rebut the claim of the heretics who brazenly and arrogantly claim that they know exactly how God would operate and therefore conclude, God must have abandoned the land. Now, last time we rehashed some of the basic ideas on the subject and today, I want to go really deep into this whole subject. To guide us, we are going to read an amazing chapter in an amazing book called Derech Hashem, the Way of God. This is written by Ramchal Lutzato, the author of many other titanic foundational books, like Mesiel uh, Sesharem and Taz etc. This chapter is more like a treatise, an absolute master class on this subject. This is in section two, chapter three of Derech Hashem, way of God. And he's going to survey all the various reasons why things happen, why good things happen, why bad things happen. And he ends off by saying, this is everything. Every reason why a circumstance would end up being exposed or, or manifested in this world is featured in one of these. It's about 10 or 12 reasons. And I think it's very helpful to understand that it's not random, and there's a complex system of frameworks. It's not arbitrary. It's certainly not disorderly. Now, remember, we don't know exactly why a specific event, which one of those 10 or 12 different reasons triggered that specific event. We don't know. Only God knows that. Was it a combination of things? Were there things that were detracting other reasons, meaning reason one says X, reason two says Y, and therefore what's the result? Very complex system. Only God can operate. But this book in general, Derech Hashem, it's arguably the best volume on Torah philosophy. I hope to study it in depth, perhaps after we conclude our study of the 13 principles. It's a total masterpiece. It's written very, very densely, like all of Ramchal's works. But it's an absolute tour de force. It's not easy to read. It's not easy to understand, it's intense, it's rigorous, but it is fascinating. And he's going to offer us a comprehensive list of all the reasons why bad things and good things happen. And we will probably make sense to divide it into two separate episodes, so let us begin. So he starts off really interesting. He starts off with the general idea of free will. The Almighty created the world with the possibility of humans doing good and doing bad, of choosing good and choosing bad. And every person is always in a state of perpetual tests. And every circumstance is a different kind of test. So for example, we have the concept of wealth and poverty. They exist in our world. They don't exist by raccoons they don't exist by rabbits, zebras. They're all kind of the same. There's lots of income equality by animals. But humans, we have some of them who are so destitute they're dying of hunger and starvation. And we have others that are so wealthy they don't do with their money. And that distribution is a unique, a uniquely human phenomenon. And the reason for it is because the mighty wants different kinds of tests for different kinds of people. So poverty, of course, is a test. You could do good. You could do bad. What's the test of poverty? Are you going to be happy with what you have? Are you going to thank God notwithstanding your circumstances? That would be someone choosing good in their bad circumstance or in their impoverished circumstances. You could be sad and bitter and angry and vindictive. Why is that person? I'm so much more intelligent than them. I'm so much more handsome and smart than them. Why are they doing so much better than me? That is someone choosing to do bad with their circumstances. Conversely, if someone is wealthy, that's also a test. Are you going to be generous? Are you going to be kind? Are you going to care about the plight of others? Or are you going to be aloof? Are you going to be stingy? Are you going to feel that you're better than other people? And that's how they might design the world. There's going to be different kinds of tests for different kinds of people. Everyone's situation is different. Everyone has a different set of challenges. And everyone has a different degree of tests from the Yetzirah. And thus, everyone has a different mission. If you're a rich person, your mission is to choose good in your circumstances. If you're a poor person, your mission is to choose good in your circumstances. And he gives an analogy. That you have a king, and the king has a court, and the court has lots of different servants all working for the king, but everyone has a different job. And everyone is expected to do their job for the king. So to the Almighty, so to speak, the king has lots of servants, that's us, and each one's a different job. And the Almighty expects each one of us to do good and to fulfill our unique mission for him. And every mission is different. And the mighty will dispense reward and punishment to the degree commensurate to a person's success in their individual mission. That's how the mighty will reward them in Olam Abba. Now, what exactly does actually this have to do with our quest? We're trying to figure out the ways of God. It's not quite evident yet. But continues the Ramchal. And he says something even more advanced. And this is the beginning of many more advanced ideas. So get ready. Every person has a different mission because every person has a different kind of soul. The root of a person's soul is in heaven, and those roots are different. So everyone's got a different soul, and the mission is perfectly tailored to the root of that particular soul. On a deeper level, the Kabbalists tell us that everyone is composed of a different part of Adam, and depending upon where from Adam, so to speak, your soul comes from, Is it from his right leg? Is it from his left ear? Is it from his eyeball? Is it from his head? Is it from his heel? That determines the, so to speak, sublimity of your soul, the loftiness of your soul, and that's going to determine what kind of soul you have and therefore what kind of mission you have. That's the background of framework number one. Every person has a different soul, and therefore every person has a different mission, and therefore every person is going to be designed or is going to be placed in a designed world tailored for them to have the opportunity to fulfill their mission. The good situations, the good circumstances, the bad situations, the bad circumstances that a person finds themselves in in this world, the things we have to endure and the things that are really pleasant and help us, That is there, says Ramchal, to facilitate the tests for us to accomplish our mission. Why is one person rich and one person poor? The first reason we find out over here is that the rich person has a specific mission to face the challenges of wealth. And the poor person has a different mission. In the king's court, he was accorded a different responsibility. And the circumstances that they find themselves in are tailored to effectuate that arena of tests. So the heritage say, God left the land. Why is one person rich and one person poor? Here we find out the first reason why. God knows where that soul comes from. God knows what is the soul's mission. And he tailors the circumstances in this world to fit that specific mission. Now, it's a really important element of this idea. We believe that our circumstances, our situation, is amendable, is changeable. You know, we believe that the Almighty listens to our prayers. The Almighty hearkens to our prayers. Our prayers. They matter. They influence the way the Almighty treats us. Moreover, we believe that hard work also matters. If you want to be rich, what do you got to do? You got to work really hard and you got to pray really hard. That's what we believe. In fact, the Talmud actually says that. We actually spoke about this in a recent Parsha podcast. The Talmud says, how do you become rich? How do you become rich? Work really hard and pray really hard. That's the formula. If you're supposed to be poor, you can change your destiny and become rich if you follow the formula. If you're born a fool, you can change your destiny and become wise if you follow the formula. We could change our circumstances in this world. However, there's one case or there's one circumstance that we cannot change. Suppose... A person's mission was to be poor. That is why the Almighty put them in this world, to be able to deal with, to encounter, to contend with the test of poverty. If that is your mission, if that's the title speak of your mission, it's completely immutable. You cannot change it. You can only change the circumstances that are ancillary to your mission. If your mission title is, be poor and thank God nonetheless, there is nothing you can do to change that. In fact, the Talmud has a crazy story. Book of Titus, page 25a. It tells the story of Rabbi Elazar ben Padas. He was one of the Amorim, so a rabbi of the Talmudic era. And he was one of the greatest sages in the land of Israel. He was the second in command after Rabbi Yochanan, after the the death, after the passing of Reish Lakish. So think of it towards the end of the third century of the common era. And he was one of the greatest sages in the land. And he lived in absolute grinding poverty. Didn't have the basics. And one time he was so famished, he had nothing to eat. And he had undergone a process of bloodletting, which was common in the ancient world, to release some blood. So he was a bit woozy, just like if you don't eat a lot, you get a little woozy. And he nothing to eat, and he's really hungry, and he found a garlic peel. And he eats the garlic peel and he collapses and he essentially dies. Or he's clinically dead. And the sages see him and they're trying to revive him, and he's laughing and he's crying, and there's like this aura about him. And finally, they succeed in resuscitating him. And they try to figure out what happened. So he tells them when he died or when he was in the state where he was almost dead, he had an audience with God. And he asked God, why am I suffering so much here? Why am I so impoverished? Could you change my circumstances? So God responded to him. I could. But if I were to do that, I have to destroy the entire world from the very, very, very beginning and start over. And then if I do that, maybe in the next iteration of complete existence, maybe then, maybe, you'll end up in a better situation. Do you want me to do it? (laughs) Should I flip that switch? Should we trigger that? So he said to God, you're telling me that if we destroy the entire world and start back from the very beginning, even then there's only a possibility, it's a chance that maybe in the next version of existence, my situation will be better. So he says, I'm not sure if I want you to pull that trigger. Tell me, did I live more than the majority of my life? Did I, am I more than 50% of the way done all this horrific suffering? So he said, yeah says, so, so, oh, okay, if I'm, if I'm more than 50% done, you know what, forget about it. We'll deal with it. We don't have to start back from scratch. That is the Talmud in the book of Titus, page 25a. We have a great sage living in dire poverty and suffering greatly, and God tells him, sorry, we can't change it. What that means is, this is an example of someone whose mission is fixed. If the mission is fixed the circumstances are fixed as well and that cannot be changed. That kind of conditioning is immutable. And therefore, when we ask the question, why is someone' circumstances like this and other ones like that, the first reason that we have over here in Ramchal is that that is the situation, the circumstances, the arena in which their mission can be achieved. Continues the Ramchal with a second reason for a person's circumstances in this world. That is a form, we're told, of reward and punishment. Now, again, we know that the ultimate reward and punishment, that's in ulama and not in this world. Yet there's a different kind of reward and punishment, which is either an aid or obstacles for a person fulfilling the mission in this world. So suppose a person has a given mission. It's easier if they don't need to worry necessarily about their income. Their income comes in easily. They make a lot of money. They have some flexibility. It's easy for them to focus on their mission, whatever that may be. If someone has the identical mission, but they have to work so hard until they can provide for their family, then someone like that, their mission's harder because a large chunk of their time and focus and energy is focusing on just maintaining the basics of living. The Almighty, we're told, depending on a person's righteousness, will either make it easier or harder for them to fulfill their mission. For some people, there's many different levels. The Rambam tells us: for some people, they're going to get a little bit of help from God, make it a little bit easier for them to do, to do their mission. For others they're going to have even more help from God and make it even easier for them to do their mission. And there's a third level of people that get so much help from God, it makes their mission totally more manageable and achievable. On the flip side, they might make it harder for some to do their mission. you can make it more difficult by changing their circumstances and making what they have to accomplish more inaccessible. And then he gives us another idea that there's a person who becomes so evil that the mighty says their mission is now impossible for them to do. The classic example of this is Pharaoh. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Says the Raman, what does that mean? It means that they become fixed in their ways. There's no way for them to repent. That, the Rambam tells us, is a punishment for their deeds because the enormity of their sins is such that they get punished that now it becomes impossible for them to accomplish their mission. And the Rambam gives us other examples. This is the Rambam in the laws of repentance, chapter 6, halacha number 3. Sihon is an example, the Canaanites are an example, Israel, the times of Elijah, these are examples in history where someone becomes so wicked they reach a point of no return and consequently their mission becomes inaccessible for them going forward. And that would be another reason why people would flourish and or flounder in this world. This is a kind of reward and punishment to adjust the degree of difficulty of accomplishing their mission. Now, the way Ramchal explains this is very interesting. You could have a tzaddik. They're righteous. They're righteous. And they're on the fast track to accomplish their mission. So we would think that the might will make it easier for them. And sometimes the money makes it easier for them. And sometimes the Almighty makes it harder for them. And the way I'd like to think about this is suppose you have someone who's like, uh, like a manager in a company, middle manager, and they're doing really, really well. So how do you reward such behavior? One way is you give them a nice bonus and take a nice vacation, go play golf. Another way you reward excellence is by giving them a promotion. Congratulations, you did a great job. Here's more work. When someone is righteous, either the Almighty will say, you know what? Let me make it easier for them to do what they need to do. Or I'm going to give them a more difficult mission because now they need to overcome the obstacles And therefore, they have a greater challenge and that greater challenge, of course, will yield greater results, greater reward because the harder they have to work to get it, that determines the amount of reward that they get. So when we see a tzaddik and their situation is improving, it might be a form of reward to enable them to do their mission more easily. It might also be a form of reward to make it harder for them to do their mission. So literally opposites. You see a tzaddik? In one instance, the situation is improving. In a second instance, the situation is deteriorating and both of them are rewards, different kinds of rewards, making their job easier, kind of pushing the dial in that direction or making their job harder and both are a form of reward. Now, of course, us as humans seeing that we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And we have no idea why one side of his, his situation is improving and the other, the situation is getting worse. But here we find that there's a framework for this. Conversely, with the wicked, the Almighty wants to allow the wicked to destroy himself. And what the Almighty would do is to make their life so pleasant and so easy. And they'll never have the time to stop and say, you know what, maybe I should improve my ways. Suffering, of course, this is something we'll still see. Suffering is a potent wake-up call to get a person to re-examine their ways. And because the wicked does not want to re-examine their ways, the mighty will say, you know what, as a form of punishment, I'm going to give you wealth and comfort. And we're going to lull you into complacency. And that will accelerate your spiritual destruction. A wicked person may also be made to suffer, the Ramchal tells us. Suppose a wicked person has designs, evil designs, to do terrible things that the mighty does not want them to do. So there are some limitations to a person's evilness. And the Almighty may punish a wicked person to prevent them from accomplishing his goal. So there's all kinds of levers here that the Almighty is using and we don't know which lever he is pushing at a given moment. But the Almighty takes it all into account and he knows what the soul comes from and he knows how, how much ability, how many skills the person has and the background and the history. And we'll get to this later, the reincarnation, where the soul comes from, what the soul did in the previous lifetime. And all that comes into account how difficult it is, how hard it is. And that is the second framework of understanding people's circumstances in this world. We have the first framework. That is the idea that a person has a mission and in order to design the mission and the set of tests that are specific for that mission, the Almighty sets a person up for certain circumstances in this world. And now we have idea number two and that's the idea of reward and punishment. The Almighty is going to slide the dial, making it either easier or harder or even impossible for a person to fulfill their mission and that is a form of reward and punishment to make it easier or harder for them in this world. That's the second framework. And then he gives us a third framework and that is the idea of suffering. Now he's going to divide the idea of suffering into two. There's one kind of suffering, Which is to awaken a person to repent. And there's a second kind of suffering, which is to cleanse a person from their sins. And the way it works is like this. He quotes the Talmud. The Talmud says, if a person suffers, that could be a message from God. Hey, you have to figure out what's wrong. Examine your ways. Examine your deeds. Look at your behavior. Find the flaw. Find the gap. Am I trying to get your attention? Form of suffering of this kind is the Almighty trying to get your attention. They might trying to wake you up. They might trying to elbow you in the ribs, nudge you awake, find the area that you need to improve upon. There's a different kind of suffering, and that's not to wake a person up, but that is to cleanse a person from sin. Everything that you have sullies your soul. And when you get to heaven and you have a sullied soul, you have a problem. So the mighty in his benevolence will disencumber you from those spiritual maladies by punishing you, by making you suffer. When you suffer, that suffering cleanses your soul, purifies the soul, fixes those flaws. And now in Olamaba the life that really matters, you are cleansed and have been freed of those alloys. Now he explains the way this works. All this is to facilitate repentance. If someone repents, someone does a sin and they repent, there's no need for suffering of any kind. That would be ideal. And that's the preference. But what happens if a person sins? And they don't repent. The Almighty in his benevolence and kindness and goodness makes that person suffer. And the objective of that suffering is only to wake up the person so that they repent. And you know what? If they suffer and they repent, then that's what the Almighty wants. That's the purpose of that suffering. Suffering to wake the person up. But if a person does not repent, and they're not reminded, so to speak, or awakened to improve their ways, then they get a second kind of suffering, and that's the suffering of purification and cleansing in order to cleanse them, to remove them, to clean them up, to purify them from their sins. There is an example for this featured in the Talmud. We have, of course, in the past talked about this idea from different sources. The Talmud of the book of Kiddush, page 40b, tells us that tzaddikim, righteous people, are like a tree. And the roots of the tree, the trunk of the tree, is in a pure place. But the leaves and the shade is leaning in to places that are impure. And what they might do is they might taste like a prune. And cuts off the parts of the tree that are leaning into the place of impurity. And that pruning, that cleansing process is what we call suffering to cut off, so to speak, those parts that are impure. And that's the suffering of the righteous in this world to remove from upon them their sins. And they get to Omaba um and all they have is a trunk in a holy place. And trees and branches in a holy place as well. Conversely, you have the wicked, the Talmud tells us. Their trunk, their base, their essence is in an impure place. But a little bit of the leaves are in a pure place. That too, they might will prune. He's gonna cut off those branches that are righteous, and in the end, the person will be totally wicked. What does it mean he will cut off the branches of the righteous? I'm sorry, of the wicked. What that means is that he's going to reward them for their paltry, paucity of mitzvot in this world in order to make them more uniform in the world to come. Meaning that the Almighty will dispense reward and punishment as a way of Making a person's totality of existence more uniform. If someone is righteous and has a few sins, the Almighty will punish them over here to cleanse them from the sins. If someone is wicked and has a few mitzvos, the Almighty will reward them here for their mitzvos. Cut off those parts of the tree, so to speak, and that way, in Ol they are just wicked. So that's the idea of the second kind of suffering. We have the first kind of suffering, which is to wake a person up get their attention, get them to repent. And then there's a second kind of suffering, and that is when a person has not repented, has not woken up, so to speak, to their circumstances, and now they need to be cleansed. Now, I'll point out that the Talmud book of Yom, page 86a, tells us that every kind of sin demands a certain degree of repentance, and depending upon the severity of the sin, that will determine what actually has to happen for that person to be cleansed. So the lowest level of sin is the lack of fulfillment of a positive mitzvah. Someone like that, they repent and they're cleansed. If someone does a more severe sin, which is a violation, not just the absence of a mitzvah, but the violation of a transgression. Someone like that, they repent, and that stops the punishment. That suspends the punishment. And then Yom Kippur comes, and Yom Kippur provides atonement. And then you have a person who has even a more severe sin. It's a violation of something, which carries with it the weight of karas being cut off the Jewish people, or it's a capital crime. And that person does chuva, repents, and Yom Kippur comes, and that suspends the punishment. And then suffering comes, and that provides total atonement. And finally, if someone does the worst sin possible, Chilul Hashem, desecration of God's name, says the Talmud, the book of Yoma, page 86a, repentance, Yom Kippur, suffering, all that suspends punishment. And only death can provide Atonement. So this is again an, an example of this idea that there's a kind of suffering that actually cleans the person from their sin. We're told here that suffering falls into two categories. Category number one is the suffering that's there to get our attention. Why did the Almighty do this to me? What is he expecting of me to do? What message is he sending to me? And then there's a second level of suffering, which is the cleansing of a person's misdeeds. So we have so far three frameworks. Again, the question is like this. Why do things happen in the world? What are the divine calculations? What's the divine perspective? What is the Almighty doing when he makes people's circumstances different in this world? So we had number one. The Almighty has a uniquely tailored mission for every individual. Every person has a different soul, a different root of the soul in heaven, and that root and soul in, in the heaven that determines what kind of mission they're given in this world. And the Almighty is going to design the circumstances of a person's situation in this world to fit that specific mission. And we're told that if a person's mission is, let's say, to be poor, if that's their mission. It's not ancillary to their mission. It's essential to their mission. Nothing they can do to to change that. Do we have to restart the whole world from scratch? And then only then, maybe, could they change their circumstances. So that's framework number one. And of course, we are not arrogant to say we know exactly where person's souls come from. We know the history of the soul. We know where an atom that soul emanates from. We know exactly what its mission is in this world. We're not arrogant and we're not fools. We can say we don't know. We understand the concept, the principle, that everyone has a different mission and therefore the circumstances will be designed in a way to facilitate, to effectuate, to enable them to fulfill their mission. That makes sense to us. But to know exactly what a person's mission is, that only God knows. That's framework number one. Framework number two is that that mission is constantly being tweaked. Is it going to be made easier? Is it going to be made harder? For some people, because of the righteousness, their mission is being made easier. Am is going to enable them, just give them as many aids as possible? For some people, because of the righteousness, the Am is going to make the mission harder. Give them a bigger challenge. Challenge them greater. Adjust their mission degree of difficulty to make it harder to make it something which is a greater achievement. And for the wicked as well. The wicked, the almighty will sometimes make their mission easier. For the wicked, the almighty will sometimes make their circumstances easier in order that they don't take the message to heart. Nothing stops them and they can get what they want. If they want impurity, the money will facilitate that. And finally, we have the concept of suffering. And there's two kinds of suffering. The Amari wants repentance. If the person does not repent after they do the sin on their own, the Amari will wake the person up to get them back on track. If that doesn't work, there's a second kind of suffering, which is to cleanse them from their spiritual blemishes in order that they do not suffer from them in Ulm Ba. But regardless, both of these kinds of suffering are beneficial for the person from God's perspective. Even though it's hard for a person to sense it at the time, when you're suffering, it's hard for you to understand that this is good. But nevertheless, when we see this idea, this framework, it makes a lot of sense. But clearly we are learning from this Ramchal and Derech Hashem that there are alternatives to the heritage view that God must have abandoned the land. Oh no, we are beginning to learn that there's all kinds of different ways that they might interact with the world. And this is just the beginning. There is much more in the Ramchal that we shall yet see. And I thought we could do this in one session. It turns out we can't do it in one session. There's a lot more to, un- to process. I'm not even halfway done my notes. We'll have to do this again next week. But there's so much more here to see, and I look forward, please, I will do this again next week. My email address is RabbiWolby at gmail.com.